can't have a seat, and we're going to kind of hop right in. Good morning. My name's Todd. I'm one of the leaders here, and um, it's been a while since I've gotten up and had an opportunity to share, so um, let's open in prayer. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come. Lord, that your love would just be poured out, that your peace would be poured out. Lord, that your amazing grace would be a reality today here in this place. Lord, we just thank you that you saved the day and that your word never fails, that salvation is here. So, Lord, just open our hearts. Lord, till up any of the hard, fallow ground that um, can just be built up by the world. And just come for us, Lord. You know what each of us needs. So we just thank you. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it was interesting when I, um, when I saw that I was going to be speaking today, I began to kind of ask the Lord, you know, Lord, what is it that you want me to speak on? And usually, or a lot of times, um, God kind of reveals those themes through, you know, what I'm experiencing in my own life, um, or what I see happening, you know, in the counseling room, or, you know, in the body. And it was real interesting because I... As I began to pray, I heard, um, I kept hearing this verse very clearly. And it was Nehemiah 8, um, verse 10. And it says this, And Nehemiah said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy or sacred to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I realized as I continued to hear this that when I heard the word joy, I thought more about like kitchen soap than I did um, about something that the Lord has that I desperately need, and that's the source of my strength. And so as I continued to kind of like, okay, the joy of the Lord, you know, the whole idea of joy just seems a bit alien to me, especially the joy of the Lord. Um, in fact, the whole concept itself, for me, seems a bit ethereal and vague. And so just my heart was just flooded with questions. You know, what does that mean, the joy of the Lord? Is the Lord joyful? If so, why is he joyful? Strength for what? And how do I experience that joy and find strength in it? So as I really began to search and seek out, you know, what is this thing called joy, um, I realized how little I knew about it. Had I ever really understood or thought of the Lord as being joyful? Much of my experience and perspective of joy, and the very little I knew about it, came out of my church experience, and it was a skewed perspective. Most of my experience in the church growing up was devoid of joy. And what I saw of religious joy, from my perspective, was emotionalism. And was, for the most part, let's say, frowned upon by the particular denomination I was in. The descriptions of God that I was exposed to growing up, they rarely depicted him as joyful. Or taught that my strength flows from that joy. So what did I really know of joy? And the answer was, not much. 
But this is what I do know. Life is hard. Work is hard. Marriage is hard. Being single is hard. Parenting is hard. Not having children when you long for them is hard. Ministry is hard. Relationships are hard. Pursuing our calling and the life that God has for us is hard. And I also know that although God continues to free me from this, that I still continue to buy into the lie that I've got to get it right. Do the right thing. Do the tighten up. Strive harder. Try harder. Perform consistently. I still battle the whisper that somehow it's up to me to pull this thing called life and, working with, and walking with God off. And I'm tired. And I'm exhausted. And I'm in desperate need of strength. Strength to face life. Strength to be a good husband. A good father. A good man. Strength to face my own brokenness and inadequacy. And my need for God. Strength to resist the enemy. Strength to expose myself completely to God. Strength to live freely under grace. And also the strength to live wisely, honoring the freedom that God has purchased for me. Strength to be obedient to God. Strength to walk with others in trials and suffering and loss and sickness and disease and death. Everything life throws at us. Strength to let go of control and surrender to the God who lovingly and fiercely and gently pursues me. And I love that quote in Psalm 18 where David says, God, your gentleness has made me great. So if we're to find the life God offers, life to the full, finding our strength is not optional. It's a must. And I would ask you today, what do you need strength for? What are you battling? Where are you exhausted? Where are you hurting? What do you need strength for today? So that verse continues to play over the screen of my consciousness and more and more, just the joy of the Lord. Don't grieve. This day is sacred. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so I began to, di- I began to dig into joy. And I found out the hard way that it's pretty easy to get off on a rabbit trail as we pursue kind of unpacking this thing called joy. I mean, joy is a major topic in the Bible. The words joy and rejoice are the words most often used to translate the Greek and the Hebrew into the English. Joy is found over 150 times in the Bible. If you add words like joyous or joyful, the number jumps to over 200. The verb to rejoice appears, in, depending on translation, 198 to over 200 times. So this is, this is a central theme, and there's a lot of stuff out there about it. But today, what I want to do, I want to lay aside all the connotations of, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all that stuff. I want to lay aside those connotations and focus on Nehemiah and what's found there. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Nehemiah chapter 8. 
And let me give you a little background while you're doing that um, as you open up to Nehemiah. What's been happening to the Israelites when we come on to Nehemiah 8 is this, that sometime around 600 B.C., because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness to God, God allowed the Babylonians to sack and destroy Jerusalem. They laid waste to it. And they almost wiped out the Jewish people. What follows for the Jews is 70 years of Babylonian captivity. 70 years in captivity. And in that captivity, their culture was decimated. Their language was lost. They were just separated from the God who had pursued them. So in the book of Ezra that immediately precedes Nehemiah, we see the decree of the Persian king Cyrus to return God's people to Jerusalem and rebuild God's house. Ezra 1 through 6, we see Zerubbabel and Joshua lead the first of the Jewish remnant exiles back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple. Ezra 7 through 10 chronicles the second return of exiles to Jerusalem. And as we come onto Nehemiah, Nehemiah recounts the third return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And just so you know who Nehemiah was, Nehemiah was the cupbearer and confidant of the Persian king Artaxerxes. From this place, in this trusted role that God had placed him in, God used him to lead the rebuilding of Jerusalem walls, in spite of the fact that the Persian government held control of it. Okay? Of that city. So as we step into this true story, we look at where the Israelites are, the remnant of God's people, when they are told the joy of the Lord is our strength. They finish rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem as we come to them on, in chapter 8. They finished it in 52 days. But their lives and cultures are still shattered. They've spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. They've returned from exiles. They've finished the walls but their distress continues. So as we go through this today, just, I want to just highlight a couple themes to just have on your radar as we go through this. Number one, that the Lord has joy. There is joy of a divine origin. That that joy is the source of our strength and the strength of anyone who embraces it. That the strength that is produced by the joy of the Lord always reveals itself practically. And that this joy and strength are waiting for us today. So, Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses before, uh, that God had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seven months, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood a lot of people whose names I'm going to get wrong. Okay? Um, and they, these, these people stood to his left, these men. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Let me pause there for a second, because there's something that kind of stood out, and I think it's really relevant for River City and kind of the church that God is growing us into, is that when the book of the law was presented to the, the remnant of Israel, they stood. 
in reverence to God and to his word. And, and I'm, the danger of, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but I really want to highlight that the danger of being a bridge church, we claim, you know, we, you've heard us say it, that we're a bridge church. What we're talking about is that you know, there's kind of this spectrum when it comes to pursuing God and his law. And on one side, we have you know, legalism. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was sharing that his church was in the process of forming a committee to decide whether or not clapping should be allowed in church. Okay, I mean, talk about it, exercise and missing the freaking point. Okay, but you've got that end of the spectrum where the law has become an idol. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have what I call tainted freedom, where our actions and our choices are driven by our emotions. And so we see the people of God, they stand in reverence to Scripture and to God. And what this looks like for River City is that, you know, there has got to be for us in our journey with God a balance between the freedom that He has purchased under grace and reverent obedience to his word. You, you can't have one without the other. But for many of us, I mean, many of us in this room, God's word has been used to judge and hurt and condemn and reject. I mean, a lot of people have the rebuking and correcting down to an art. See, remember, religion uses the law as a checklist of how to please God. And it's the grounds for judgment, condemnation, rejection, self-elevation. Okay. But in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we see this. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you may be thoroughly equipped and prepared for the work God's prepared for you since before the beginning of time. So even though many of us have been wounded or abused by Scripture, if we were to truly find the life God has for us, we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. To put it directly, without Scripture and how God intended it for it to be used for teaching, rebuking, and correcting in love and by the Holy Spirit, and in training in righteousness, our freedom becomes tainted. And our growth into maturity stalls. As Paul says in Galatians, there are some so-called acts of freedom that destroy freedom. So we see the people of God respond reverently to both God and the Scripture. And we pick up in verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They worshipped. I love one of the definitions I found of worship. It says to love unquestioningly and uncritically. That they came before the Lord, and their physical posture denoted their internal state. They worshipped. They bowed down uncritically and unquestioningly. They fully humbled and fully surrendered. They worshiped. And so we pick up in verse 7. And also, a bunch of people whose name I'm going to get wrong, um, the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law, from the law of God clearly, 
and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy or sacred to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. I mean, what's happening here is that the remnant of Israel have come face to face with the unfaithfulness of their fathers and their own sin. And what's being read highlights two things for them. God's faithfulness, mercy, and pursuit of His people, and their unfaithfulness, rebellion, and sin. And their hearts were broken. They wept. They cried over just how far away from God they'd wandered. And we look at in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and it kind of, as they're confessing to God later in response to the joy they experience, they, they depict where they are, and they say it very well. This is what they say in Nehemiah 9.36. It says, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you, God, gave our forefathers, so they could eat his fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. That's what's happening as we read Nehemiah 8, that they are coming face to face with that, with their own distress, with their own brokenness, with their own unfaithfulness. These people see the connection between their sins and their broken communion and fellowship with God. And they see the connection of those two things with where they are. They see the slavery, the slavery they experience as a result of their own sin. And they see that relevancy of the sin in their life because they've experienced its destruction. I mean, how many of us in here, if we were really to be honest, could say, I've experienced the destruction of my own choices, my own sin, my own wanderings from God. So that's what they're experiencing in this place. But then we pick up in chapter 10, and this is where it just becomes amazing. God's goodness becomes amazing. It overshadows the human condition. It overshadows our furthest runnings. In chapter 10, Nehemiah says to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is sacred or holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is sacred. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to those who had none and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. They went and rejoiced because they understood that when Nehemiah said, wait, today is sacred. Don't grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. They got it. And let's pause here for a second because I think this is where our hope and strength comes from. Let's dig here for a minute. So Nehemiah says that. He says, don't be grieved. Today is sacred to the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This day is sacred, Lord. Why is it sacred to God? Because the Lord rejoices. He parties when his lost children, us, come home. 
The Israelites were t- returning to God on this special day. That's why it was sacred. His children were coming home to him. Psalm 104.31 speaks of God himself rejoicing in his creative works. We see in Isaiah 65.18 where God says he will be rejoicing over his redeemed people and they will be a joy to him. One of the most well-known verses that really depicts God's joy over us happens in Luke 15. The religious leaders of that time were criticizing Jesus for hanging out and eating with sinners. Us. He was hanging out with us. Then Jesus told three parables in response to that. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And the explicit theme of each parable is joy over one lost person returning to God. One. I'm just going to go through them real quickly because I think they're just powerful how they depict and articulate what happens in God's heart when his children come home. Luke 15, 1 through 7. This is the English Standard Version. Now the, collectors, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one until he finds it? He goes after the one until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice, I'll translate, party, dance, raise it up with me. I found my lost sheep. And this is incredible. He says, I tell you this, that in the same way, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then he goes on to tell the message of the lost coin. He says, or imagine a woman who has ten coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure that she'll call her friends and neighbors and say, celebrate with me. I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. And we see the, I mean, one of my favorite stories is the story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, it says, So the father divided the property between them. This is after the, his youngest son makes the choice. He said, Dad, give me everything that's coming to me. I'm out of here. So the father divided the property between them. And it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through the country, and he began to hurt. How many of us are in here and we've hurt? We're hurting now. He signed on with the citizen there who assigned him to, to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop that no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against, before you. I don't, be, I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up and went home to his father. This is my favorite part. When he was still a long way off, we don't ha- it's not up to us to make it back home. It's not up to us. This is my favorite part. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was on the road looking for him. 
his heart pounding, the father ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't, be des- I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But his father wasn't listening. I love that. And one translation says, and he interrupted him. He cut, it, he cut off his apology. He was calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. Given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. They began to celebrate. They began to rejoice. So the day is sacred to the Lord because there is no one who can replace you. No one who can replace you in his heart. He's joyful at our reunion with him. I mean, we, we hear it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He's joyful over his acceptance of us. That the, the death and separation caused by sin has been overcome. He can draw near to us and we to him. He rejoices. He has joy at his restored ability to pour out his love and life into the fullness of our hearts. He rejoices at our freedom. He rejoices at us being put back together. He rejoices at being able to walk with us in the garden again. The Lord is full of joy over you. No one can replace you. No one can fill the spot, that spot that you occupy in the Father's heart. That's why he rejoices when we come home. So how does this translate into being a source of strength for us? I love how C.H. Spurgeon said, he said, you cannot be with a strong God without getting strength yourself. For God is always, first and foremost, a transforming God. What this means is that without being in his presence, without restored communion, we can't experience his joy over us. And if we can't experience his joy over us, we will have no strength. It's the source of our strength. Without it, we wither and die. I mean, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, we're a wreck. In the absence of that joy that is experienced over us, that God's love for us. There's a great old quote. It says simply this. It says, to be loved gives us strength. And to love something gives us courage. And this really fits what we see in Nehemiah. To, love, to be loved gives us strength. God's joy, joyous love for us strengthens us. We experience that when we humbly and honestly enter his presence. And by honestly, what I mean is we don't hide our crap from him. We're honest about our brokenness. We're honest about our sin. We're honest about our need. We're honest about where we are. And then we see that to love something gives us us courage. I mean, Scripture tells us that we love God because we were first loved. And that gives us the courage to follow where he leads and what he leads us through.
David wrote Psalm 16, and the title of it, he titled it, You Will Not Abandon My Soul. And I'm going to kind of hop through it. It says, Preserve, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my God. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also instructs, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Sounds like strength, doesn't it? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. That sounds like physical strength too. My whole flesh dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see, or, or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in, we see David kind of un, unpacks it for us. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. And as he goes through Psalm 16, I mean, there's we receive counsel in the presence of the Lord. We receive, receive instruction, peace, faithfulness. We see God's faithfulness in his presence. We, our purity is restored and protected. We experience life, the path of life. And in that fullness of joy, we experience the strength. And the bottom line is... Everyone, we desperately need it. I mean, we need the strength to seek him and trust him when our marriage is in the crapper. To choose him when we're tempted by the world. When we're battling it out. We need strength to confess our sin when we've completely blown it. And to be able to approach him in our failure, in our humanity. I mean, we need strength to approach him when we're reminded of the abortion or the divorce or the loss of virginity or that thing you swore you'd never do again. Our lost hope. Our dreams that have died. I mean, we need strength to come before him to walk through that. We need strength to be vulnerable with the hurt and broken places in our life. We all have them. I'll get to that in a sec. We need strength to love the unlovable. To endure the sufferings and trials and brokenness of this world. To choose them when all of our emotion tells us we're a thousand miles away. God wants nothing to do with us. We need the strength to do good in a broken world. And see, that's what flows as we go through the rest of Nehemiah. You look at Nehemiah, the rest of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, we see that the joy, they, the strength that they experience from experiencing the joy of the Lord plays out in these ways. First, it leads to humble obedience. They begin to obey. Very small, very small things, not just in great things, but very small things in the book of the law. They begin to obey. So it leads to a humble obedience. Secondly, it leads to great praise and humble confession. I mean, chapter 9 is really cool because it's this crazy dialogue with the remnant of Israel to their God of saying, you are amazing, you're faithful, you've rescued us every time we've come to you, but we've been faithless. 
And so it's this crazy dialogue of praise and confession and honesty and putting God in His proper place and recognizing that He is good. He is faithful, even when we're faithless. And then it leads them in chapter, at the end of chapter 9, it leads to devotion. They renew their covenant with the Lord. And then it plays out practically in chapter 10 as they detail how this will practically, this, this devotion, this commitment, this choosing to worship the one true God, how it will play out practically in their lives. Come on up, guys. Uh, the band's going to come up. We're going to enter back into worship in a second uh, as I finish up. But, you know, one of the questions that continue to come back to me is how, how do I get that? How do I experience that? And it only comes from God. I can't manufacture it. I can't perform it. I can't choose to do the right thing enough to experience his joy over me. That it, and that's the one true source of my strength. So there's not a formula to finding it. But I know this. We have to break through our religious baggage, which leads us to that place of either legalism, our tainted freedom, or some half-in, half-out, line-straddling place in between and just come before the Lord, acknowledging what is true of all of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We're all broken. We're all jacked up. Every one of us. If you see someone who's presentable, you're probably seeing a mask. Okay? The truth is that Every one of us is in desperate need of the Father. Acknowledging that we've all wandered or run from God. If we, like the Israelites who stood at the water gate, will bow down, worship, and allow our hearts to be broken by our desperate need for the Father and His love, we will find that God has a gift for us. His joy over each of us as His unique creation. His joy over you coming home. His joy over being able to love on you again. For in His presence is the only place where we can be fully free. Where we can be put back together. Where we can find rest and peace. And ultimately the strength to walk the path ahead. Thanks.